Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, episode 25, July. We're at the halfway mark for the year. Sumer is a in, or has arrived. Let's see what the Minologia Arustica has to say about it. Month of July, 31 days, noons on the 7th, day, 14 and a quarter hours, night, 9 and 3 quarter hours, sun in Cancer, Domain of Jupiter, Harvest of Barley and Beans. Previously, it went by the name Quinctilius, fifth month, renamed for Julius Caesar. The honor was part of the Lex Antonio de Mense Quintili, proposed a few months after that man's assassination in 44 BC, the first time, but not the last, that a month was given to a mortal man or rather, to a mortal man made into a god, the divine Julius. The name stuck, as how could it not? Everyone who hates tyranny and likes the god Julius, raise your hand. Barley is still a summer harvest crop, and back in the day, gangs of itinerant agricultural labor followed the seasons around the Mediterranean. One of Vespasian's ancestors got his start running such a gang, and now it arrived in Campania, uh, so also beans. Not much more to be said about that, other than that modern technology can detect moisture content of the grain with greater precision than did the ancients, and so narrow the harvest focus. Modern technology also has combine harvesters, which puts the kind of labor involved into perspective. Another reminder, if one were needed, about just how fragile food supplies can be. Now that Vespasian had gone to his Olympian reward, the question came home. Could Titus live up to his standard? Could Domitian? Not that there was much anyone could do about it. Vespasian had declared that his sons would succeed him or no one would. There's a lot of wiggle room in the second half of that declaration, but no one seems to have seriously explored it, and so Titus was in charge. And not everyone was thrilled about this. Titus has a flattering write-up by Suetonius. Titus, of the same surname as his father, was the delight and a darling of the human race. Such surpassing ability had he by nature, art, or good fortune, to win the affections of all men, and that too, which is no easy task, while he was emperor. For as a private citizen, and even during his father's rule, he did not escape hatred, much less public criticism. A criticism, as we noted in episode 14, based on various incidents that suggests he was a bit of a psycho, but charming, so if you were susceptible to charm, you could overlook the excesses. Modern examples abound, men, and also women, whose fan bases cause rational people to shake their heads in mystification. For ancient examples, one can argue a resemblance here to Alcibiades, the golden boy of Periclean Athens, prize student, prize athlete, but a man, in the end, who could not be trusted. Not that Titus ever betrayed his country as Alcibiades did, but the Romans were not to know that. 
Titus appeared the model for some of the more alarming Renaissance princes, all cunning schemes and careless murder. There were rumors that Vespasian had been poisoned, and at Titus's instigation. Certainly the future Emperor Hadrian, he was three at the time, believed this, though he gave no reason for doing so. Of course, there are always stories like this when a sitting dynast dies, whatever his age. One rumor sprouts another, and the story could have originated with Domitian, or men of his circle, to blacken Titus's reputation. Domitian, again reportedly, was convinced that Titus had altered their father's will, robbing the younger brother of his promised co-rulership. Not true, according to Suetonius, who has Titus assuring Domitian that he always considered the younger man as both partner and successor. The author goes on to describe Titus as bursting into tears and begging his younger brother to please like him just a little bit. Exactly who would have been present, or who would either of the principals shared this tete-a-tete? Staff slaves and maybe freedmen, possibly, again, assuming the story is true, and the slaves were credible enough sources that contemporary historians gave them a hearing. Officially, of course, the brothers were close. Romans paying for goods and services in AD 79 might use a Cistercius engraved with Titus and Domitian clasping hands in fraternal solidarity. No one should imagine that Domitian could be enticed to supplant the new emperor. Whatever the true relationship, lukewarm at best is the modern consensus, Domitian was made consul ordinarius in AD 80, a modification from Vespasian's original list of appointments. The Flavians were a family enterprise. Dynastic families must hang together if they are to survive. On a day-to-day -day basis, however, Titus needed to prove himself as a one-man show. Power could be doled out gradually as he became more comfortable in his position. He also had to polish his reputation, in which he appears to have succeeded mightily. Bear in mind how Suetonius opened the biography, Delight and Darling of the Human Race Indeed. Sextus Aurelius Victor, writing much later, echoes the sentiments, after Titus had acquired the imperial power, it is incredible how much he surpassed the man he imitated, particularly in learning clemency and favors. Pretty hard cheese on Vespasian, but there it is. All that from later historians, the Senate of AD 79 had feared another Nero, which says something about how Titus was viewed before taking power. A Nero, of course, princeps at age 17, enjoyed a soft and self-indulgent existence, and was dead at thirty. Titus was thirty-nine, and had been schooled in war and imperial management by his able father. Now in charge, he surprised the skeptics. It seemed that Titus was sobered by the reality of his new position. Gone were the wild companions of his youth, replaced by trustworthy advisers, chiefly holdovers from his father's day. Personal extravagance gave way to a more modest living, self-indulgence to indulging the people. Prince Hal with a smile, if without any specific Falstaff. For all his past hardball tactics, he wanted his public persona to be lovable, 
and was shrewd in pulling this off. Like his father, he stressed his own connections to the best of the Julio Claudians and his distance from the worst. A Flavian service to Nero was double-edged. The Senate hated him, but the mob was more forgiving. All Romans, however, could agree that Britannicus, Claudius's son and Titus's old schoolmate, grandson of the working man's idol Germanicus, Germanicus, brother of Claudius, was a worthy youth cut down too soon. Titus stressed the story of his having been present at Britannicus's death and nearly dying himself from drinking the same poisoned chalice. Titus had a gold statue of the maybe-murdered boy erected at the palace, and an equestrian model of ivory that was part of the opening procession to races at the Circus Maximus. The statue remained in the show as late as Adrian's reign over forty years later. He knew he had critics, and he affected indifference and tolerance. It is impossible for me to be insulted or abused in any way, for I do not that deserves censure, and I do not care for what is reported falsely. He seems largely as good as his word. From here on in, no senators would die by his hand, no charges of treason entertained. Delators, professional snitches, or, depending on your point of view, principled whistleblowers, were to be exiled, a popular move among the rich and vulnerable. And then, once again, there was Berenice. As we said in episode 14, her presence had made influential Romans nervous. Some years before, the Jewish princess had arrived in Rome and moved in with the then-unmarried Titus. Shades of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, which pairing also did not work out well. When the tut-tutting got too severe, Vespasian had her expelled, much to the dismay of her and of Titus. Now that Titus was in charge, there was, reportedly, some anxiety that she might return. And, in fact, she did try. She now assumed, not unreasonably, that her lover, the autocrat, could, and would, do exactly as he liked, which meant, naturally, that he would once more take up with her and even propose marriage. He did not. Instead, he refused to see her. The act was straight out of the Aeneid, that Bible of Roman literature, in Book Four, Aeneas, a refugee of a now-shattered Troy, purportedly rejects settling down in rich Carthage and marrying the scrumptious Queen Adido. Why? For the sake of his destiny, that is, the greater good of Rome. Fate drives a man to his duty. Forced to choose, like Aeneas, Titus chose Rome. Pretty weak comparison, but it served well enough. Then there was Rome's long-standing antipathy towards eastern queens and the matter of their respective ages and children. She had two sons by a prior husband, and at age 51 was unlikely to produce any more. The Flavians were already not quite pure Romans, or rather not Ur-Patricians. Bringing this pair of exotics into the family was a large ask of the Senate and the people of Rome. Politics, not love, conquers all. A colder interpretation might be that Titus had grown tired of her, 
and absence had not made his heart grow fonder. Titus had not seen her in a few years, and his tastes at some point began to turn to young boys and eunuchs, though he is said to have given these up as well. Berenice had outlived her usefulness, that being her wealth and eastern connections. This assumes she was funneling him, or Rome, more money than he would have gotten otherwise, and that she could, or would, make serious trouble for Rome if she stayed in the east. Given the state of Jerusalem and her first-hand knowledge of just how vicious Titus could be when crossed, she had, after all, witnessed his treatment of Jewish POWs during the rebellion, she would have had to think long and hard before opposing him. Or, finally, it is perfectly credible that she herself thought that enough was enough. She would rather be home where she got more respect and her word was final than be a guest in Rome. However engaging Titus's company may have been, and by all accounts he was charm itself, a woman has her self-respect to think about. She departed from Titus's life and the record for good. However disappointed she was, she should not have been too surprised. Unlike Dido, she did not commit suicide. Sensible woman. The relationship had already been strained even when he was just the son of the emperor. Now that he was in charge, the complications were simply too great. It was early days and he had not yet cemented his position as emperor. Still, the alternate history could have been interesting. Rome would have been lucky to have a woman like her at his side. One wonders if the two wrote to one another, or if she wept when he died. Not this year's problem. We're still in AD 79, and Titus got down to work. All honest petitioners who came to him for justice or generosity departed with, at the very least, words of encouragement. The army received a bonus. The army always received a bonus if a new emperor did not want to end up like another Galba. The masons and architects engaged in public works saw their employment renewed. In all, the skeptics' worst fears were proving unfounded. Tacitus's comment that Vespasian was the only emperor who improved on the job discounted the behavior of Titus. Then again, his writings on the later Flavian saga have been lost, and it is possible that he had another take on the new emperor, or other unflattering stories or interpretations. If, for Vespasian's tenure was marked by general calm, Titus was to be handed a series of crises that no one ruler should ever have to face. More on that in due course. That senator-slash-historian had a father-in-law named Agricola, who was currently in Britain subduing the Britons. The same beat that Vespasian and his brother worked on a few years earlier. We shall discuss that able man a little more in our next episode. Until then, thank you for listening, and if you're getting anything at all out of this and have some loose wealth to spread, don't be shy about sending it my way. The donation buttons are there on site. <laughs>